The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to have this man joining us, Mr. Rick Murata. He's a drummer, percussionist, composer, one of the preeminent drummers in the world. He has had a lot of experiences from being a touring musician, a session drummer on some of the most famous recordings ever, and just to name some of the artists he's drummed with, John Lennon, Paul Simon, Peter Frampton, Peter Gabriel, the late great Warren Zevon, Kenny G. I could keep on going. He is also a composer. You may have heard the theme song to the hit sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. It is a great pleasure to welcome Rick Murata. Rick, how are you, sir? I'm well, thanks. Wonderful. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, thank you. I think most stories are best from the beginning. If you could paint a picture with words, what was life like growing up? Before drums or after drums? Yeah, before drums. Just just a, a snapshot of, of what the typical day was like. It depended on where we were. I mean, I'm from New York, but my parents moved to Cleveland when I was pretty young. And my brother Jerry and my brother Tommy, my, two of my brothers were born there. And a typical day was in the summer to get up and go down to Cumberland Pool and swim and then come home for lunch and go back down and swim in the afternoon and then come home for dinner and go back down and swim in the evening. That was my summer. And then I would go and spend a month or so in New York, my grand, my grandmother's. And that was the summer. In the winter, it was just going to school like a normal kid. No, I had a music appreciation class in grammar school. And uh, when I went to high school, we moved back to, to New York. And I went to high school in New York. And um, I had no musical training in New York at all. I wasn't in the band. I just went to school and, and uh, kind of worked in the summers, and that was it. It wasn't until after I went to college that I, that I started playing drums. And why the drums? What brought you to that instrument? Well, it was probably because I was a dancer at that time, and my friends were, were – I, I grew up in an area of New York where, in Westchester where there were a lot of really good bands. And there was one – particular band called the orchids that we used to go watch when i was like 15 16 years old we couldn't get into the club it's called the canada lounge and we listened to the orchids and there was a guitar player named link chamberlain who was just astonishing and ray panucci played drums and billy mclean i think was his name also played drums in the band at one point and they were really really great so i kind of gravitated towards the drums and i also had a lot of dancing in my background, my parents were dancers, and I was a dancer coming up. And a buddy of mine, Dave Spinoza, who was in a band also in the town where I grew up, I was dancing, and he said, man, you have great rhythm. You know, if you were, if you play drums, I would hire you in my band anytime, because you just have great rhythm. And his drummer got drafted and went away into the Army. And I said to him, uh, his name was Billy Reed, and I said, Billy, what are you going to do with your drums when you're gone? And he said, well, I don't really know. I haven't thought of it. I said, how about you want to just leave them with me and I'll, I'll watch them for you. And this way I can, you know, keep an eye on them and I'll play them. He goes, great idea. And so he, he, he left and left me his drums. And then 
I brought him to my parents' house. I put him in the attic and I started playing the drums that way. About two months later, I was playing in a band with um, Spinoza. So it all came around. I'm guessing your background in dance was a great help to you playing the drums. Well, it was in that I already was known for having rhythm. So it was, I already was confident about my rhythm. Other people saw it and, and I, I felt good about it. So yeah, it was good. Can you recall the first time you went into a recording studio? I can. I was playing, I believe the first time I went into a studio was to play on a record that David Spinoza was playing guitar on, and he had gotten me hired as a drummer. It was an R&B session. I wish I could remember, you know, a lot of guys remember this stuff, and I don't. I wish I could remember the band, but it was... Just a just sort of an R&B band, like a couple of singers, a couple of female singers, vocalists. And we did the session, and it was single. And I remember that we I used to listen to the station in New York was WLIB. And about, I don't know, two weeks later, I'm driving down the street listening to WLIB, and they played that song on the radio. I, I wish I could tell you, what the song was, I, I really, I, I don't remember. I'll go back and ask Spinoza, but he won't remember because he had doing a lot of records by then. But that was the one that gave me the bug hmm. to do this. And I also, he had a band called Giant. We were in a band called Giant. And we did an album at the record plant in New York. And that was, that was another of the first records I did. Who would you say your biggest influences are as a drummer? Well. It depends. It's a very good question because I have to go to my first first time I watched or heard drummers playing and what made me gravitate towards them. And it was the Young Rascals and Vanilla Fudge. So you had Dino Donnelli and Vinny Apice. And then that's with the embryonic periods of my 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 music my musical interest but andy newmark was the first real influence on me he was younger than me by a couple of years and he was playing in a band with spinoza and those guys and he was a incredible kid and i remember he used to be in a band where he had to wear a suit it was spinoza's band uh and it was called either giant or I forgot what the name, different names of the, of the band that we had back then. And he had to wear a suit and he wore cufflinks. And he went around the drums so fast that his cufflinks would fly off and fly into the audience when he was playing one of these insanely fast fills. And he liked to go around the drums through the toms. And uh, he was really quick. And I remember a couple of times watching his cufflinks fly off and his cuffs come flying out and him with that giant grin of his. So it was Newmark and those other guys, but Newmark was the guy I used to watch and we grew up together. I've known him since we were kids. And then I got really influenced because I was playing in mostly R&B bands and I was really 
influenced by Bernard Purdy and Herbie Lavelle, Bernard Purdy, guys like that. Then as I, I sort of matured and I started to branch out into other areas of music, there was Jeff Beccaro, Russ Kunkel, and Jim Gordon and Jim Keltner. So there's a lot of different, different influences there, but they really made an impact and an, an impression on me. And when it started with Bernard, but then when you sort of put together Bernard's styles with Jim Keltner's styles or Jim Gordon's styles, it starts to take on a new, a new life. And I, I started to develop my own way of playing. Since I wasn't ever formally trained, I think it was one of a, I think it was a really, it really helped me. You know, in one way, it was very, I was insecure about it because I would show up at these sessions where everybody was reading and everybody knew all the fundamentals and the rudiments. And I knew the rudiments that Andy taught me, you know, paradiddle and double stroke rolls and press rolls. And Andy was nuts with with the, with, with rudiments. He was doing them all, flam a diddle, Radham McHugh's and all that stuff. And then I would just start to play. I'd get bored after playing paradiddles for a while. And, and, but that's, you know, that was my training. And so I guess that's the way it started for me. But the, the, the best part, I think the thing that made me different was sort of the where I put the pocket and not having been trained and having all these influences and sort of hybridizing or, you know, melding these styles together. Do you know what I mean? Am I making any sense? Yeah, absolutely. But another huge influence, obviously, was Steve Gadd. I mean, when I started doing sessions in New York, Steve and I became really, really good friends. Spinoza called me and Mike Maneri called me. I remember I got three calls, Dave Spinoza, Mike Maneri, and Tony Levin. And they all said, there's this guy coming to town. This kid, he's really great. You guys really need to meet each other. And we did. And we met on a session. We talked on the phone. And I had seen him play with with Chuck Mangione on a videoed concert. This is so long ago. (laughs) And I remember seeing it and going, and I was going, oh, my God. And they featured him a lot. And I went, oh, my God, this guy is unbelievable. And he was playing this really unique rolling style of sort of funk, but it was different. So when we met, I was doing a, um, I remember I was doing an album for Jerry LaCroix, who was the lead singer in Edgar Winter's White Trash Band. And I had been touring with Edgar and Johnny both, but I was in the White Trash Band for a while. And, and Jerry LaCroix did his own solo album. And I, and I played drums on that because the drummer from White Trash and, and Jerry's best friend, Bobby Ramirez, had been killed in Chicago in a bar fight or something. And, and he was a very good friend of mine. And um, so when Jerry did it, he, he did this album and he had Bobby's face on the cover of it in, in the face of a lion. And that was the first time I met Steve. Steve came to the session and sort of stood in the back and watched. And we became really close friends. And we, I learned so much from him and we would just try to do different things. You know, Steve never would say to me, how do you do this? Because he could just look at me and understand what it was. So anyway, that, those were my, um, my, uh, that's the protracted way of giving you my influences when I was growing up. Steve obviously became my biggest influence because we, we began to play 
together a lot. We did John Trope's record. Uh, we worked with Carly Simon. We worked in Yoko Ono's band together, in the Plastic Ono band. So, yeah. What is Steve Gadd like on a personal level? Steve is one of my dearest and oldest friends. And on a personal level, he's, I mean, it's family. He and I are, we just, he's family to me. You know, he's a little bit, he's really, he's not deviated. You know, I deviated and I got really, really tired of being in the studio all the time. And I got really tired of being on the road mostly because it road the road takes a toll on some people more than others. And I'm someone that the road took a toll on. I'm impatient. I'm a kind of a homebody guy. And Steve is able to do it. And he travels with Carol, his wife, and he's got a great family and, and he really has really made it work. And so on a personal level, that's, I think that's, I just think he's one that, you know, he's one of my closest friends is all I can tell you. I don't know. He's got a lot of good friends, but one of the things I thought about him today, because another guy I was with earlier today told me two jokes. And whenever I hear a joke, the first thing I want to do is call Steve, because I can't tell you over the years, how many times I've gotten a call in the middle of the night <laughs> and and it's Steve on the other line, and I always pick it up, and I hear, I, it's not hello, it's not how you doing, it's, I go hello, and I hear, so a horse walks into a bar. I mean, <laughs> almost every time I talk to him, there's a joke, a new joke, and then he laughs at it harder, harder than I do. <laughs> so that's my, that's who Steve is to me, and I'm really close with his entire family, his daughters and uh, his sons and his wife, Carol, I've known as long as Steve's known her. So we're just very close. Beautiful. Rick, do you think drummers get the respect that they deserve? I think that some get more than they deserve. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that drummers that really do the work and are really good get recognized for what they do. I don't ever feel, I feel like my particular case, I feel like I'm always surprised when people come up to me and say, man, you really are such a huge influence. And I'm so humbled and so flattered by it because I, it's just a natural thing for me. And then I think of all of the great drummers that I've learned from that I've been inspired by, like Jim Gordon, like Jim Keltner, like, Steve, obviously, like Andy Newmark and Bernard Purdy. And I think, geez, if people think of me in the same breath as those guys, I think it's great. So as far as I'm concerned, I feel happy. Do I think that all drummers, oh, like Keith Carlock nowadays, I saw Keith, I saw this, um, Tal Wilkenfeld was on TV, on a Colbert show the other night. And I watched it because I think she's pretty astonishing as a bass player. And I noticed Keith Carlock was playing drums and I, I recorded it. I must have watched it 10 or 15 times already. So, I mean, what, what do you think? Do you think drummers don't get the recognition that they're, they deserve? Well, guys like Kenny Aronoff and guys like Keltner and guys like Purdy. I mean, I think that in this circle, 
you know, I'll walk down the street and somebody will come up to me and go, holy cow, are you really Rick Mahana? Because we're not, we're not TV actors. We, you know, we're not actors. We're not movie stars. We're not TV stars. We're guys that played on records, but somebody, you know, guys that are real audiophiles know our names. Like I saw a doctor. I was seeing a doctor in, in Los Angeles several months ago for a spe- specialist in, in this particular thing I was going in to see him about. And, and, uh, said to me, have, have I, have I seen you before? I said, uh, no, this is my first time here. My doctor, doctor recommended I see you. Oh, your name is familiar. So this is a, this is an older guy, a doctor. He goes, wait a minute. Ah, ah. Steely Dan. <laughs> and I went, what? You played on Steely Dan records, didn't you? I said, yes, I did. Oh, I know I had seen that name. Uh. He's doing something else. You know, he's, he's now he's just sort of looking at his paperwork and looking at some blood work and stuff like that. He, in the middle of all that, he looks up, he goes, James Taylor. And then he starts <laughs> naming off, he starts naming off artists. And I thought, that is the weirdest thing. But the guy had a eidetic memory or something. And he said, I remember, I, I'm a guy who reads covers, who reads liner notes on records. And he said, and I remember reading your name and I can put the name together with the artist. So, I mean, that always, to me, that's, that's surprising and, and humbling. You know, that's on one side. On the other side, no, I don't think that they get the credit that they deserve because I think a lot of records that we played on, the drummers, the drum parts, made the record. I mean, they made it way better than it was. Oh, yeah. 50 Ways to Lose Your Lover is a great record, but forget it, man. That drum part is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, the you know, Asia is an unbelievable song, but my God, what Steve Dad played on that is, 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 is it's, it's his legacy. And if you ever listen to um, Chick Corea stuff, Steve and Andy, Anthony Jackson did, was it Leprechaun or Night Sprite? I mean, they read, they were reading the horn part or piano chart or something. It's ridiculous. So I think those things should be talked about a lot more. Like when people are interviewed, I think that they should be recognized. Steve Gadd played on this, this, and this, and listen to these parts, and let's just discuss it. What do you think? Well, I have to say, I smiled big time because, and this is, maybe this is a surprise, but probably not. The moment you said there are so many songs that without the drum part, the song would not be what it is, or the recording would not be what it is. Immediately in my head, I heard Steve Gadd's drums on 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover as you said those words. I heard, you know? (laughs) So that should answer your question. Yeah, Yeah, drummers do not get the respect that they deserve frequently. Now, you were mentioning this doctor and all of the liner notes and a lot of those albums, I have those albums, and I remember seeing the letters of the, of your name, Rick Murata. And I'm curious, has there ever been a session that you just, it blew you away that you got to play on this artist's album? And if so, who was that? Uh, you know, that's a really, that's a really 
interesting and hard thing to answer. I, I, I have to say that in, in thinking back, I remember when I got called to play on Aretha Franklin's album, I thought, this is amazing. And when I walked in the door, I felt differently because her reaction to my walking in was like, what's this guy doing here? Where's Bernard? Then when I played, she was through the, you know, she was over the moon and they subsequently called me to go on the road with her, which I couldn't do, but I, I did go play some rehearsals with her because my friend Bill Eaton was her musical director. They didn't have a drummer yet. And they were doing, putting the band together and I couldn't do the tour. It just wasn't something I wanted to really do. I've been on the road for a bit and I had some other commitments, but Aretha, Paul Simon, when I first got called to play on James Taylor's album, Walking Man, I thought that was really great because I was such a huge fan of James's. But then when I played on, on um, Dad Loves His Work, I got to play a song called uh, Hour That the Morning Comes, where I was lucky enough that they, Peter Asher talked James into keeping my original drum part on it. because, uh, And that really made me happy. And that's one of my the highlights of my, my playing, I thought. Steely Dan, when they called me to do Steely Dan, I originally turned it down. Because I didn't really, I was so busy, you know, just you couldn't do everything that, that everybody called you for. And then Elliot Shiner called me and said, you, you idiot, show up at this session. And I went, we were such good friends. I just said, oh, okay, Elliot, I'll be there. And I showed up and the first thing that he did was, very first thing out of the gate was, don't take me alive. Agents of the law, luckless pedestrians. I... I stopped playing in the middle of that song and I realized this is something really great. Hmm. <laughs> so I've had those moments, but to be honest with you, my tendency, the way I grew up, I guess was the way my parents raised me. They said, they always used to say to me, you have value. Um, you're a valuable person and there's nothing. There, I never felt like, you know, I, I don't know. I just felt like I I think I belonged there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. I could be. That sounds a little egotistical, but I just felt like, okay, I belong here. And sometimes I would walk in and go, what am I doing here? I mean, some, I'm trying to think of some of the crazy out sessions that I did uh, that either Leon Pendarvis would write some stuff sometimes. And I would, it would freak me out. Spinoza would write some stuff sometimes when they did arrangements for somebody or they were doing working on their record. Those guys could write amazing parts. But I remember when I was doing working with Pendarvis on something or with Spinoza, they both said the same thing. I said, I, I can't. They, they wrote it and it looked like just like it just was notes and it was a lot of notes and funky and really was, was, was intimidating. And I remember. Penn and Bob David both said to me, Rick, you played this on stage the other night. We wrote down what you did. And so I felt stupid. But then Pendarva said to me, Rick, same exact thing happened last week with Steve Jordan. And I figured, well, I'm in really good company. If Jordan said that, because he said he wrote a film that Steve Jordan had just played. And, and Jordan said, I can't play this. And, and Penn said, 
he just played it the other night on stage when we were at McCall. <laughs> so, so I mean, uh, those were more intimidating than 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 walking into someone's room. I always felt like I was there because they knew who I was and they wanted what I brought to the table. That's why I don't know how to answer that in any other way. Did I feel really good about it? when I walked into John Lennon's session and I'm going to play on a John Lennon session and I'm going to play with Jim Keltner? Did I feel like pinch myself? Yeah, I did. Hmm. I did feel that way. And when we did the tracks, I felt that way before, during, and after because it was like it was like insanity. In there. We were playing. We got he didn't, you know, he was he was great and he let us do what we wanted to do. So yeah, John Lennon, things like that. Yeah, I did feel like okay. This is something. Of all of the musicians that you you played on their albums, as I said, it's and as you listed, there's just such a great list of them. Who was the nicest? The nicest person? Yeah. Nicest person? Yeah, nicest person. Well, there were. I, I always remember, and I now I haven't seen her in a lot of years, but I always remember. Sean Colvin, who I didn't really know before we did her record. And I remember walking in and when we started working on her record, I was thinking, this is the best record I've done. And 10 years later, I said, one of the best records I've done in 10 years is Sean Colvin's record. Sean Colvin, Carly Simon. I mean, Carly, I go, Carly and I go back so long. I met her when Andy Newmark was playing with her. And when I worked with her, it was always like, She's the nicest person possible. But there were other people like that, too. There were others that were really nice. But Sean Colvin, I didn't know. And she was incredibly nice. Carly, always unbelievably nice. I see the guys in Steely Den. Donald and Walter were always really nice. They're oddballs, but they were nice guys. We used to like hanging out. Even when the sessions were over, we would be hanging out. So that was nice. Jackson Brown, I mean... Morn Zevon, I, I, there's so many really nice ones. I, I guess I say too many, right? You want me to keep it brief, so I'm <laughs> going to say Carly, Sean. I'm glad that you mentioned the name Warren Zevon. He made some incredible, incredible albums. And I, again, I, I remember looking at the liner notes and seeing that name, Rick Murata. I'm hoping you can share your memories of working with Warren Zevon. My memories of Warren, I don't know. I had a whole conversation about Warren two nights ago. Was it two nights ago or last? Two nights ago. Yes, at dinner. I had conversations. I talk about Warren all the time. Warren, working with Warren Zevon was one of the highlights of my, my life. It was trying. He was a great, great guy. We were really close friends. It was trying because there were, there was a lot of, of abuse, substance abuse all around. Warren was drinking at the time, but he was a beautiful guy. And the song, every song was just a gem. And I remember when I first met Warren and we were first working together, I was kind of walking along with him. We were going, maybe we were going to dinner or lunch or something at a session. I know as I was walking, I said, Warren, I got to ask you a question. 
where on earth did you ever come up with this hasten down the wind? Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that song. It was a Linda Ronstadt song. Oh, yeah. She had it. And I listened to when Ronstadt did it. She was very nice to work with all the stuff, by the way, doing her album. She was great. But I'm walking down the street and I said, hasten down the wind. I go, how did you come up with that? Because he was such a wordsmith. I mean, but in a in an oddball way, the way he would put words together and the things he would write about, rolling the headless Thompson gunner. Come on, who comes up with song titles like that? So I said, how did you come up with Hasten Down the Wind? And he goes, well, I was thinking about breaking up with somebody, you know, take a hike, beat it, get out of my life, hasten down the wind. And I thought to myself, that's the difference between a genius songwriter and a guy who's going to write a song called Beat It or, or Take a Hike, you know? And working with him was just, I remember once he said, let's write something because uh, I was starting to dabble in the writing. Let's write something. He said, okay, all right, let's come up with some ideas. He goes, Rick, all you need to do is come up with a title. That's the way he writes songs. Werewolves of London. That, he's off. Uh, Hasten down the wind. He's off. Um, poor, poor, pitiful me. He's off. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Come on. How great is that? So I could never come up with anything that was that was good enough back then. Everything was too... I remember one night, he had an idea. We were in the studio, and we are working on one of his records. He, goes, he had an idea for a song. He goes, guys, let's start playing a blues tune. We're playing a blues shuffle. Just like that. It's me, Waddy. I think it might have been Body Glaub. Maybe J.D. Souther was there or, or Jackson Brown. Could have been Jackson. We're all in that room and you're with great songwriters. Waddy co-wrote uh, Werewolves of London and produced the album. Jackson, all these guys, brilliant songwriters. And all we, all we played for like 15 minutes was a blues tune and all Warren was playing piano kept singing was the Pope of Rome. The Pope of Rome. So how 15 minutes of him singing the Pope of Rome, he stopped, he says, the only line I can think of. And we never did the song. And I always thought, this is songwriting. This is like a masterclass in songwriting. A guy sits around singing the Pope of Rome for 15 minutes to a blues tune a blues group and 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 it doesn't ever go anywhere but it was it was so memorable i still remember it today i think <laughs> when i talk to waddy every once in a while i'll say waddy you remember the pope of rome and he'll roll his eyes and go yeah 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 <laughs> interesting as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview you did quite a bit of touring can you remember or could you tell us the most fun tour you ever had that is hard because I'll tell you, I had been doing really big tours, Linda Ronstadt tour, James Taylor tour. And I'm talking at the peak, the peak of their popularity. 
Well, I did Linda's tour when she had, we had the number one song of the year and the number one album of the year, Simple Dreams, Grammy winning, you know, song of the year was uh, vocal performance or song of the year and producer of the year. It was when she did uh, Blue Bayou. And that tour was, was great. James's touring at the same time was great. Warren, touring with Warren at the same time. So I was going Warren to James to Linda, same band. And basically, then we were doing all their albums and Jackson's album, Jackson Brown's album, and uh, Warren's album. And we would, that was it. But I did a, a tour once that it was really low budget. We were in a bus and we were hauling our own gear. So we're in a bus with a trailer behind us. And it was for an artist I had done an album with called Tony Childs. And it was, until it fell apart, it was great. It was so much fun. Her music was so great. She was one of the best artists that I ever worked with. And also incredibly nice. When you talk about, I like the question. I like that you asked me who's the nicest artist. No one's ever asked me that before. Like everybody asks, who's your favorite artist? Who's the best artist? And I can never answer those questions. I mean, hmm. we all know Steely Dan. We all know Peg. We all know stuff like that. John Lennon and all that. But they're all great. You know, they were all great. Some, some people were not so great. Not so great to be in the studio with. But these, the nice ones were worth remembering and Tony who was incredibly talented she we did this tour and it was great Jimmy Smith was a guitar player from Dublin he was there I can't remember everybody else and in the band but we're all it was just we're all in one bus the couple of crew guys backline guys were in the bus with us we went it was a tough tour and I just remember when it was over, I missed it. I missed the guys on the tour. I missed the music. So, and I think it's worth mentioning because not always that way. Well, as you mentioned, you were saying that like sometimes there's the flip side of the coin and you have to deal with egos. How would you deal with, with people who had like an ego or maybe they weren't the nicest person? What was your method of, de- of, of dealing with that? I was not, I wasn't, it really depended. I mean, if there were guys in the band, it would just be like, I just, you know, I'm, it's, I don't get pushed around that easily. So I wasn't, I didn't ever coward. I just gave as good as I got. And uh, so it usually ended up being okay. Or I would tell somebody, listen, you, just, you and I are not, we're not going to hang out where this is not fun or I don't want to work with you, you know, but I think I would try to do it a little bit less, be less acerbic about it or vitriolic about it. But I don't know. Have you asked these questions to others of your other people that you've had conversations with? Uh, and what do they say? Well, yeah, I've asked the ego question before or something like, how do you deal with people like that? And, uh, I remember one guy, he told me, he said, you know, kill him with kindness. And I've also heard a lot of stories, especially with musicians, especially with, I might add, with like songwriting teams, where I'll ask, so what'd you think when you started, you know, you, you were, you wrote lyrics, this guy 
was a composer. What do you think? I, I've been surprised by how many times I've heard someone say, I did not like this dude. <laughs> and then they end up writing, you know, some of the greatest songs of all time. So, well, yeah. that that's classic, though. I mean, there are so many guys, but a lot of times that starts out with that happens when people start out as kids and bands together. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like a marriage. Yeah. You get married when you're really young and you start to grow apart. You're still married until you get a divorce. But before you get a divorce, you hate each other. In the business of music, the business of music, you're with somebody that you don't like, but you're, it's your living. I mean, look at the things they used to say about McCartney and Lennon. I don't know what's, you know, Paul McCartney right now couldn't be more, more respectful of John, but he's, I, I, I like listening to him now. He just really approaches it in a very, very respectful, very clear, seemingly clear way and gives John a lot of credit and says sometimes we just didn't get along. They wrote unbelievable songs. My God. I'd like to get, I'd like to not get along with somebody so badly that I write those kind of songs. <laughs> well, on the note of writing songs, as I mentioned at the top of the interview, when I think about television theme songs, there are two that come to my mind when I think of the really cool ones. I think of the theme song to the show Frasier, and I think of the theme song to Everybody Loves Raymond, which a lot of our listeners may not know this, but you composed that song. How do you compose songs? What's the method that you use? They're very different. Now, in that, in that particular song, I have to say, I had been on the road for about a year with Larry Carlton, maybe a year and a half. And the keyboard player in Larry Carlton's band was Terry Trotter, a purist, jazzophile, just pure jazz guy and, and, you know, always giving me a hard time about, you know, we would have arguments about who was a better jazz drummer and he was very opinionated, but really, really good guy and really great player. Doing that, I came in with the idea, but I could never play piano that well. I came in with the idea and I came in with the first, the, the beginning of it. And then we just played. We just played. Chuck DeMonaco, who's no longer with us, upright bass player. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you know anything about Chuck. He had played with, with uh, he, did, he did sessions all day, every day. Movies, records, played with Joni Mitchell, upright player. He was an upright player. This guy, if you sat and talked to him, you would go, he's a truck driver. Or he's like he works for in, the, in the subway. Or he lives in the Bronx. But he lived in L.A. Smoked like a chain smoker. This guy was such an incredible bass player. So now I've got me, Chuck DeMonaco, Terry Trotter in a room, come up with these little ideas. Let's play this. Terry just starts blowing, right? Hmm. Done. We do two or three of these. I go back in, and honestly, I just took pieces and put it, constructed a different piece of music. You know what I mean? So I did a movie called um, the, the Making of, it was called The uh, Exporting Raymond, and it was the making of Everybody Loves Raymond in Russia. And so I went back in, and Terry and I, 
I got like some of the original recordings of us doing the long version, like three minute version, four minute version of the theme for us, Raymond. And it sounded really great. But basically it was just, that was almost like a jam session. It just started out with, and then Terry said, can I, how about we play this? I like, we want Jolie, we want Jolie. This old Al Jolson thing. I said, sure, that sounds great. Let's do it. And we did it. And that's how it came about. No lyrics, though. Didn't Frazier have lyrics? Yeah. The, the beginning song did not. But then at the end, yes. And that was sung by Kelsey Grammer. Yes. Yes. You know, the, the first year Everybody Loves Raymond was on, nobody saw, you know, very few people saw the show. There was very little interest the second year. So there were, I think, six or nine really expensive pilots that were done that year. I had done a show for Phil Rosenthal before. I had worked on, I did a coach hour special and I did a show with he, he and um, Alan Kirschenbaum, who gave me my first job as a, as a composer in television. We were partners and they had a show called Down the Shore and I did the music for that show. And, and at that time, Phil was very loyal and we're still very close friends. He called me to do a Everybody Loves Raymond. And um, we, we did it. I thought it was a great show. No one, you know, it was not a big hit the first year. Second year, I think they moved it. Third year, it becomes a big hit. I get calls from Variety. I get calls from Hollywood Reporter to do interviews about the main title. They're freaking out how much they loved it. Call, you called the um, Emmy, Emmy people. Somebody from the show called them because the show was being put up for Emmys now. And they said, and we like our theme song is getting a lot of interest. They said, oh, no, no, no. The theme for the show can only be nominated for an Emmy the first year it's on the air. Do you know how many shows are on for two or three years, two years before anybody does traction? So it never could be, it wasn't, they sent me a, a, a some sort of black or something saying for consideration for the, for the Emmys, but it was never really considered because it was, it wasn't the first year it was on the air. Hmm. Man. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your brother. I'm sure that you and Jerry musically I don't know. You you tell us. Do you have a, a special musical relationship when when you're someone's brother playing with them? Well, we have a band together right now called the Marotta Brothers Band. Right. On Martha's Vineyard. And um tonight actually was supposed to be we were supposed to do a gig, but the venue where we play here is there they had another they had another event booked tonight and Jerry had an event he was Jerry has a gig he's in Norway right now but he'll be back for next Wednesday and we'll do that Wednesday gig next week it's interesting when I started playing drums and then I left the house Jerry started playing drums unbeknownst to me because I was already gone and Jerry was eight years younger than me so Jerry starts playing the drums and I noticed when he played, he did everything he could not to sound like me. And he created his own style. And I don't know if you remember, but when he played in Peter Gabriel's band for 10 years, and they did the security album, the one that had Shock the Monkey on it, 
and um, I have the touch and those songs. I mean, I got a, I had a copy of it. I remember I had a copy of the of the album before it came out, and I was working on a record sound factory in in LA, and I remember bringing the tape in and saying to a couple of guys there, one of them being Nico Bolas, man, let's listen to this on the speakers. And Nico put in the tape, we sat there, and I remember Nico standing behind the console. He didn't even sit down for like 20 minutes, almost slack-jawed. We're listening to this, first of all, masterpiece of an album, but also to this completely different approach to playing the drums. No cymbals, none. So the interesting thing is when Jerry and I play together, like Steve Gadd and I, when we play together, it's that we've done it for so long and we had such a shorthand and such a a great relationship behind the drum set. I, I just didn't think I was ever going to have that with anybody else. With my brother, Jerry, we have a totally different relationship playing two drummers because that's what we're doing. We're playing a two drum two drummer band. And... It's so different. I don't know what he's going to play. I'm standing there and I'm playing. I'm sitting there playing and I play my parts and I look over at him and he, I can see him play. And I, all of a sudden I'll see him sort of look up and all of a sudden start to play something else. And Jerry plays the drum kit. What I noticed about Jerry that was very interesting to me went way, way back when he was playing like on Galileo with the um, Indigo Girls and on Gabriel's record, is he breaks away from conventional approach to playing hi-hat, snare drum, bass drum. He breaks away from that and just plays the drums, the top of the drums, and then in, and integrates cymbal hits here and there, and always comes up with these unique, rolling, full drum kit parts. And, I mean, that's, that's what I'd say about him. I, I mean, he, he's just a different drummer. We have the same sort of genetic idea of where one is and where the backbeat is, but the rest of the approach is just different. And it works really together. It works well together, really, really well. Very interesting. What is the best thing about being Rick Murata? What's the best thing about being Rick Murata? Yeah. Well, it changes every every once in a while. It's different. Best thing about being Rick Murata is being above ground, I think. I have some really good friends. You know, I get calls every once in a while from Gad. I've got guys in the business like John DeChristopher and uh, Harry McCarthy and my brother and Spinoza and guys like that, that I've known for so many years that I'm, I still have great relationships with. And I think that that's kind of makes me feel good. And then I get to play. I mean, I've been around a long time and I'm still a musician and I still like it. You know, I still like it. I just don't like, like, for example, Jerry, Jerry works Every day he's got a gig going on somewhere. He's in a recording studio. He's producing. He's playing drums. He's traveling. He went to Oslo this week. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm tired. I'm too tired to do that. But I remember when I used to have to do that to make a living. 
the best thing is right now I don't have to do that and I still enjoy playing so I get to do gigs that I want to do and um, you know and at the moment I was in a band called Ronin in the 80s and uh, with Waddy Wachtel Stanley Sheldon and Dan Dugmore and we're going to we're going to go to Japan in January putting the band back together we rehearsed in in Nashville uh, in March and we're going to go to Japan and do a little tour in Japan and it's fantastic. I mean, uh, how can I complain about all this stuff? I'm sitting on the back porch of my house in Martha's Vineyard. And hmm. I'm not seeing a whole bunch of bad right now. <laughs> it sounds like a nice place to be. Yeah, it is. Well, you mentioned John DeChristopher. So first of all, I want to thank him for making this interview a possibility. And then in closing, I always like to give the guests the stage. I just let them take the microphone. Music is such a universal thing. We have people listening from all over. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Totally open-ended. I don't know. I mean, I'd say hello. Uh, I hope you enjoy all kinds of music, and I hope that you that music makes you feel good. You know, it's 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 hard for me being a musician and ha it's it's hard for me to listen to music all the time and i would just say treasure your relationship with music and don't take it for granted well spoken well mr murata thank you very much for making the time and joining us it's my pleasure. It was a, a real pleasure to talk to you. And, and John told me what a, a nice guy you are and, and uh, what a, a nice interview it would be. And sometimes I get a little, you know, same questions over and over. And I, this one was really different. And I really liked it. It was, it was my pleasure to do it. Oh, and I'm going to call John and tell him about it, too. Oh, how nice. Thank you so much. And as we were talking about the Murata Brothers, I want to tell everybody they can also check out com, and they'll have more information there. I really appreciate your kind words, and until we meet again, until next time. Thanks. Take care. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bop, bop, ba doodly zing bang booyah ducky jop a doona cock a boodly cock sabiti pankat chilapakadu zilipankatonalakapa a goodbye.